windows. The Bucks got all the right steps in Charleston. They now can try their slipper and see if it fits at the big ball. These Tennessee State Buccaneers, they're dancing, boys. Hunter Muscato, Perea lays it up. 1.4. Perea hits it. The pass is caught. Ready for the game winner. Wide left. Bucks win. Nothing spotting for three. The place is going to erupt. Oh, Deuce Bellow. He's going to make Sports Center with an incredible. Jarvis Jones, the game winner, got it. Ball game. East Tennessee State's going to leave on another. They got him. If he catches it, it's over. Ball game. Touchdown, Jawan Stinson. 25 yards. J.J. German for the win. He got it. J.J. German and the Bucks have shocked the Bulldogs. And the sidekick. Who in the blue hell are you? <laughs> You're handsome. You have the perfect amount of scruff. And you still have no talent. It's Sandos and the sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Good Monday, Jay Sandos, Mike Gallagher. Another edition of Sandos and the Sidekick, a victorious edition of Sandos and the Sidekick in a game that's, I don't even know how to describe it, um, not stellar, uh, really, for, I thought for either team. I thought uh, defenses made plays. I thought offenses had chances. Um, I think for ETSU, they only had three, three offensive series in the first half. And to hear Coach chuckle last week about only having four against Chattanooga and then to only have three, but only be down 6-3, I think that was the amazing thing. And there were things you could point to for each team, and we're going to go over all of those in just a minute. Jay Santos, Mike Gallagher here, Santos Psychic, um, on everything that kind of went wrong for Furman and kind of went wrong for ETSU and things that, that people – you know, we're able to make plays and go, but I'll start with sort of the start of the game. Furman, beautifully scripted drive, goes down. Bucks give up some plays, hold, give up a field goal. Then the unfortunate turnover on the ensuing kickoff, but then the unthinkable, and I asked everyone post-game that was wearing Furman purple if they've ever seen Ryan Miller drop a pass. I even asked if he even denied a professor to drop his lowest grade. I mean, is there anything that, to see that pass play happen and to have him miss that catch out of all catches, the easiest one of his career, I would argue, and to drop that. And then ETSU got a big sack from Davion Hood, who's going to play probably in the last three games. He's going to play his four games, keep the red shirt. Uh, you know, playoffs probably won't see any action, but at least that's the game plan now. Then he gets his first, first or second collegiate snap, gets a sack, pulls him out, they punt, ETSU, drive stalled by the penalty, right? We've talked about that a lot. It was the block in the back. I think it was Nate Atkins. That penalty brings back a 50-some-yard gain. ETSU then eventually has to punt. Berman goes down the field, 11-play drive. They get a field goal. ETSU then punts. You get halftime. It's a 6-3 game. I don't know. Your thoughts on the first half before we go any further? Because there's a lot of talk about it. Yeah. Firstly, credit to Jace Wilson because – he looked good, and I called on Thursday Furman to try Ham Sisson out again, and I was wrong. There's no question about it because he goes 15 and 26, 226 touchdown. Had the one interception, yeah, but I think overall that's about as good as you can expect from a guy playing what his third, third game, fourth game, whatever it was, as a true freshman. Um, while he looked good, Furman did not. I mean, they blew so many early opportunities. Uh, 
it felt like they should have won by multiple scores if they could have just executed a little. Now, you can point to a couple of things on ETSU's side and say the same. And, heck, you can probably point to a couple of things in every game on both sides and say the same. But Furman early, it really did stand out. And Ryan Miller, definitely the most memorable of those. Um, the broadcast was horrible on Saturday. Uh, camera work in particular. So live, they didn't have the shot of him dropping the ball. Now, thankfully, they did have um, behind the end zone a replay, but so I had to go back and watch, you know, try to do stuff here and then watch the broadcast at the same time. So I went back and, st- and saw it, and boy, I mean, it, it would have hit him in the eye if he wasn't wearing a helmet, you know. I mean, it, it was right there. Um, and I think that that was, and this is what ETSU's defense has done so well time and time again, that was one of those early in the game, okay, how is this going to go? Is the defense going to step up after a critical mistake early where clearly you have given Furman a golden opportunity to seize this game? And we'll talk about it in our SoCon wrap-up of the rest of the weekend. Um, you know, a couple weeks ago, Mercer had that against VMI, right? A couple of early turnovers, 14-0, completely thrown off your game plan. And you end up losing 45-7. to I'm not saying this game would have gone that way. I don't think there's any way Furman could put up half that, let alone 45 uh, but, that being said, um, it was an opportunity. And when ETSU made the most of that mistake, because let's keep in mind, while you know, we can chide Ryan Miller and Furman for not taking advantage, it does take two to tango, right? They still could have gotten that first down in the next play. Instead, you get the sack, you push them out of field goal range, and at least here in studio, I think I was counting the Bucks' lucky stars. And also, you know, keep in mind, as I'm saying, you know, they had something to do with that as well. But that they were only down 3 nothing at that point, I mean, absolutely incredible, considering they didn't touch the ball for like the first six or seven minutes of the game. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I'm choked up over this. Um, not the rain Sanders choked up like Coach Show where he couldn't recover for 20 minutes. But I think it was amazing when you look at the first quarter and you just read certain stats. And <coughs> sometimes stats lie, but, you know, 11 minutes, 18 seconds time of possession, 20 plays to eight. You know, not yardage-wise, doesn't wow you 98 to 36, but the fact that they had the turnover, right, in plus territory. I mean, you just look at those stats, and then it just started to swing really ETSU's way because they would end up the next three quarters basically holding it for 31 minutes you know, compared to 14. So they held it a whole extra quarter. They didn't have it for a quarter. <coughs> well, maybe I'm not going to make it. They didn't have it for almost the whole first quarter. But they were able to really dominate the game in time of possession and plays. I mean, just eight plays to 20 in the first part of the game. And they would end up out snapping them total 71 to 54. So you're the math guy, right? More than me. So... That's only 34 plays, second, third, and fourth quarter for Furman altogether. And then for ETSU, you're talking about 63 plays. I mean, if you just say that, it's funny. You just read the first quarter and you're going, man, ETSU's probably down a couple scores, a couple things there. Then you read the rest, you're like, well, ETSU just had to run away with it. Then I tell you they're 10 of 15 on third down, perfect in the red zone. They force a red zone turnover. You know, you're sitting there going, oh, ETSU maybe 35 17. And then you tell somebody 17, 13, they're just staring at you. Because I don't think, again, stats lie sometimes or don't, don't tell the whole story. But there were things that ETSU was able to change 
And I found it interesting that teams moved the ball some in the in the first half. I mean, I thought ETSU, the, the, the drive they got the field goal on was a 14-play, 66-yard drive. And I think it got they got the rare first down right on the 10-yard line. So it's first and goal to 10, which is never ideal to begin with. It's first and goal, but obviously you'd rather have six, seven yards or five or whatever. Hardest situation to football. Right, because uh, it's already limited what you can do and all that. And so they end up kicking the field goal. But it was 6-3. I think you feel pretty good. And then ETSU came out, started to throw the ball, started third quarter. And, and one of them was an RPO where the read was to throw it, not run it. But still they were, you know, content on throwing it. Didn't get um, really a lot of traction. Maybe one first down had to punt. And then, um, or did they even get a first? Yeah, they got one first down, then they had to punt. And then Furman, you know, they go right down the field with a couple play-action passes that were spectacular to Ryan Miller. You know, he got the 52-yarder, and he catches the eventual touchdown pass, which seemed fitting since he got him down there. And ETSU goes to what we thought ETSU would be, 11 plays, 75 yards, and it was the yards after contact. It was the Jacob Sailors carrying a couple tacklers for a couple extra yards. Then it was Quay Holmes, a two-yard gain turned into eight. Then it was Quay Holmes slash offensive line shoving him for an extra six yards on another carry. And it just seemed to turn that grinding sort of mentality. You could see the sideline start to get geeked up a little bit when those ball carriers would get those extra yards. And it, because people are fighting, right? I think that's what it, it shows. Hey, they're fighting, we fight, right? One of those mentalities. And then it caps off with what it should, the birthday boy, Quay Holmes' 23rd birthday on October 23rd. Gets a touchdown, and all of a sudden it's 13 10. Yeah, and Quay said at postgame, he said he thought that the entire day they had the run. And I think I believe the same. You probably believe the same as well. You, Robert, you know, Don, all harped on it on the broadcast. I think I did in our highlight package after as well. The game plan was very interesting. And hearing Coach Sanders talk about everything postgame made it more sensical than I think it was at the time because – it looked like, <clears throat> pardon me, it's contagious. It is. Six or seven yards per carry was there every single time. I mean, what was it, ten carries in the first half or through that first drive um, of the second half for 72 yards between Quay and Jacob. I mean, that's 7.2 a carry. And when you hear Coach Sanders, then it starts to make some sense, and it comes off as a little stubborn from Coach Sanders as well, right? He said that he thought, standing on the sidelines, looking out at the field, that there were guys running open everywhere. There should have been 450 or 500 yards passing with how many guys were uncovered. But he didn't want to abandon that, even though it wasn't hitting. It seemed like he did just at the perfect time. And now it's probably a little bit too late for fans that are sitting there saying, you're going to give me a heart attack, Coach Sanders. I mean, we've got three points. This isn't working. Do something else. But when he committed to running the football, and I think it was, is it that second drive of the third quarter, or the third drive, I think it was, it was the, sec- second. the second drive. Eight rushes, three passes, six-minute drive, touchdown, and then the two drives after that, uh, 14 plays each. So your last three drives combined 39 plays. That's something that against, I think, 99% of teams – at the FCS level, ETSU is going to be able to do. Jacob Sailors didn't have a touch until about the eight-minute mark of the second quarter. And now I understand there weren't that many plays. Game flow didn't favor ETSU getting everybody involved, but guy had 130-plus yards. 
the week before on the ground, averaging like 10 yards per carry. So I understand, you know, some of what Coach Sanders was doing. Um, I think he is a very intelligent play caller. There is no question about that. And that is shown no more than in the last, what, uh, 25 minutes of the game, 20, 25 minutes of the game, because he saw things that Tyler Idol was not seeing, and eventually he was able to separate himself from Tyler on that day, because obviously we know Coach Sanders has a very high standard for quarterback play. And probably coming down to the FCS level and not having the Jameis Winstons, right, the Peyton Mannings that he's been able to coach, it's probably been a pretty big adjustment. The standard, very, very high. And so at some point he's had to say, you know what, it's different here. And everything I see, the quarterback is not always going to see. And now, he tried to drive that point for about, you know, 40 minutes. All right, I'm going to keep calling it because, come on, you got to hit something eventually. Well, the Bucks didn't. And then eventually, when ETSU really needed to get down to business and go and win the football game, Coach Sanders did the right thing. I think it came down to, <clears throat> let me touch on Sailors first. He generally plays the third series. And the third series just took a while to get to. The first eight plays, because they only had one series in the first quarter. And, you know, you get the, the pass to Nate Atkins for a first down. You get a 20-yard run for Quay Holmes. You have the 50-yard called back on Holmes. Then they go a couple of sacks on pass plays. Then the second drive for ETSU, Holmes for six, Holmes for three, Juwan Martin first down, then three straight passes. And then the third series, which is generally. Now, I know what throws me off is last week, they liked the matchup of Sailors on the edges versus Chattanooga. And so the first play was a design for Jacob Sailors, and there was a couple of plays early where they were both in the game as part of the game plan. But generally speaking, he only gets the third. I think it was just odd, but it just took that long to get there. The other thing I would say is the subtle change in pass protection, which was not send as many guys out in routes, specifically the running backs. And they did a masterful job for all that we give credit for, both running backs for running and catching and doing everything. The best thing they did in this game was pick up blitzers or help double-team a guy if he broke free, and Rydell had plenty of time to make throws. Talking to Coach McCutcheon a little bit after the game, a little bit in the hallway, and Coach Sanders, they still stick by guys who are running wide open. Now, I watch the game differently <clears throat> because I'm watching ball, and Robert is more of a play-by-play guy by trade. If we would have had Matt Wiljam in the booth, he would have been the best guy because he watches down the field. He watches the safeties. He looks at coverage. He looks at it like he, a quarterback would. And it would have been nice to have had him. I'm going to see if he can go back and watch the game. And I know it's not the same thing because you don't have all the same camera angles and you won't have everything. But I'm kind of curious what he saw. The big thing for them was Rydell couldn't see people. Like one play, I do know that I did find early in the first half, Will Huzzy is running about as naked as you can down the sideline with nobody around him. And Coach referenced that play and kind of specifically where that play was. It was easy to go find. And he's right. If Rydell could have saw him, he could have threw it. He could have threw it up like a punt, and nobody would have got there. I don't know the play would have scored, but it would have been about a 20-yard completion plus run, and it would have been easy. And I think when you get hit a lot, and I think Rydell did a better job once he found out he wasn't going to get hit because Rydell, like a lot of young quarterbacks, first read isn't there. Let's look where the rush is coming. 
oh, man, i got to tuck the ball. And by the time you look down and look back up, what did Randy describe it as? It's almost like a, like you drop your cell phone on the road. Right. And you pick, you know, you look down, you pick up your cell phone, you look up, you're, you're still on the road, but you're not sure exactly what's happened. Same thing. Now you're not quite sure where everybody's at because you've taken your eyes off everything. So then instead of throwing a bad pass, and Randy did give credit to Tyler Rodell when he looked down, looked back up, instead of making a bad decision, he tucked and ran. When he was upright, I mean, you, third down passing, he, or third down efficiency, Bucks were 10 of 15. Three of the five misses were sacks where Rydell wasn't able to get the, the ball off. Six passes, he was able to complete, I think it was six passes for uh, six first downs. Or five first downs. Six passes, five first downs. Four rushes for four first downs. So, I mean, I think he just got one on a penalty as well. So, Or maybe all six of his completions were first downs. But if he was able to have time, he looked great. But a lot of quarterbacks look great when they have time. I'm curious if the line, and maybe the bye week comes at a perfect time, because those guys played eight straight games. Can they get a week off? Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, they only work on themselves. They work on techniques. They work on their offense. They don't game plan. And coaches said this before. Sometimes a bye week is good for teams just to get back to who they are and get a chance to work on just themselves and not a specific, like, hey, we have to block this different this week because of this team. Like, let's just get back to technique, running the offense, learning plays, getting some young guys some reps, you know, all that good fun stuff. And I think it's a perfect time for that because there were plays, and I didn't watch and, and see everything. I know they got beat straight up one-on-one one a couple times on sacks. But there were plays on those screen games where if one lineman or even the tight end could have just pushed somebody an inch and a half away from the ball carrier, those plays would have hit big, and they were hitting big early in the season. So I'm looking forward to the bye week, those guys being able to rep it. That being said, I thought they recovered well in the third quarter. Last year, third quarter, calls didn't go ETSU's way. I think Porter's ejection stemmed from the end of the first half where there probably should have been a targeting against ETSU on Jace Wilson. It wasn't called. Clay Hendricks went crazy. Looking back at that, it probably should have been an ejection at that point. Porter's, I think, was a little bit twofold. One, they were already heightened to the concerns. And I say that, and it came from the replay booth, but I assure you, while the replay guys were trying to get a, a water and Gatorade, um, the Furman coaching staff let the replay guys know about it in the hallway, which is why those guys have a door locked and usually don't let people near them. So Furman's people had already got all over them about it. Looking back at it, it it's – there's not a great angle, but usually when it looks bad in today's game and you're looking at it there, you go with it. I still don't agree with the pass interference call. That being said, both happened. Zach West now inserted. He was, you know, he played a little bit in the recon package early in the year when Blake Bockworth was there. Played a lot more obviously when Bockworth's been hurt. But here's a guy from little small Watauga 1A high school football in Boone, North Carolina undersized outside linebacker, and all he does is make two turnovers, right? The interception, and I'll give credit to the defense. Early in the game, I just didn't see them putting their hands up to try to disrupt. But going back and watching, there's a couple times where Olajuwon Papleton, who's all 6'7", got his hands up, and Jace Wilson missed a couple throws because of that, not because 
Pinkleton got there, not because he blocked it, not because, but a couple times, Wilson, different arm angle. He tried to throw it over the top. He threw one sidearm, things that not really his release point if you watch the rest of the game. And I thought that was big that ETSU was not doing that, where Furman was doing that and kind of disrupting some of the lanes that Tyler Rydell could throw to. I thought because they were doing that, and they missed, you know, Noah Henderson, the tight end running across, and uh, they missed another out route throw on a big third down. But then that led to Jace Wilson throwing off his back foot, tossing it up, and Zach West, and I know everybody really wanted him to take a knee, but I think where he caught the ball, not sure what's going on, I, I, think, I think he was better off running it because he wasn't sure. I mean, there's nothing worse than – now, they give you momentum, so in reality, they probably wouldn't have called a safety, but boy, can you imagine catching a ball like three yards deep, and then you go in there and, and take a knee, and you put it in the hands of the Southern Conference official, especially the back judge there, and him uh, having some questionables anyways, but I think it was tough for him to know, and then ETSU did what I thought they should do. They were able to get the midfield. Yes, it stalled out. Nate Bracken was able to punt, but because they did that, and I know Furman got the midfield, people are like, well, Furman got the midfield, but they had to go the whole field. You know, that ETSU didn't punt from their end zone, and then Furman needs a first down or two, and then they get a field goal. They were able to make Furman go the full field. Bucks get the stop. They get the punt back, and then, you know, I couldn't have been more wrong. And with 4-10 to go, I said, you know, hey, I think ETSU will probably still run it. Little screen, they're going to do whatever. They did not. It was straight shotgun and sling it and 14-play drive and Tyler Rydell made all the right reads, all the right decisions, heaves his legs a little bit, Bucks ran when they needed to, converted, what, three third downs on that drive, and it eventually got the back of the end zone touchdown of Malik Murray. I'll catch up to you in a second. I do want to touch on the offensive line because I am worried. You know, your four sacks in the first six games, five versus Devon Maxwell, essentially. You don't even want to really include the rest of Chattanooga because he had all five. Uh, and then four sacks in the first quarter plus, like the first 20 minutes that he gave up against Furman, six sacks total. And this is the unfortunate part, I think. It's a horrible way, if this is how it's unfolded, it's a horrible way for an offensive line to kind of crumble because it's almost not even fair how opponents have done it, right? Like, you've got one guy in Maxwell. ETSU's offensive line have been untouchable for the first half of the season, and then Maxwell comes in and game wrecks and puts on tape just as one person how you're supposed to attack this offensive line and... Is that how Furman was able to capitalize, especially early on, to the tune of four sacks in the first 20 minutes and then six sacks total? If so, to me, what an unfortunate way for the offensive line to get exposed because, again, it's by basically one guy, and not every team has that one guy, right? So it's like, okay, well, you know, that's an aberration. That's a one-off. Devon Maxwell is probably one of the best defensive linemen at the He's FCS the best level. in the Southern Conference. Definitely in the Southern Conference and maybe in the country at the FCS level. Uh, he entered the weekend top five and I didn't see what he did this weekend but top five in the FCS and sacks um, so that to me would be unfortunate because now Furman's put an entire team on tape right the, the slow little progression and maybe it wasn't really that slow it's one game to the next right but the one guy and then maybe teams can't take advantage of that not every team at least if you're not as strong on defense and you don't have that super incredible standout but now you got a whole team that was able to capitalize this one week later and put together more of a holistic performance in pass rush to get six sacks and have it not be just one guy. So I agree. I do have optimism that it is the bye. And guys were beat up. And 
you play eight weeks in a row, and then add that to the you know four, five, six weeks that you've been ramping up towards the start of the season. I mean, that that is a grind. There's no question about it. And bodies are probably sore and hurt and banged up, and guys have been playing through stuff. So there is reason for optimism, but I am also rather concerned um, because you do have three games that are you know winnable, and it seems like right now the only thing that can stop ETSU from going on and being a one or two loss team in the regular season and being a perhaps, perhaps, right, but a perhaps um, seeded team going into the FCS playoffs is, right now, that offensive line. Um, To me, this game came down to, you talked about it late on, but overall, situational defense. And Zach West is an example of ETSU's depth. He's also an example, and you called it right in the moment of how phenomenal ETSU has been in the red zone defensively. And I've just got a few that come to mind. And I'd forgotten one, so I just jotted them down. I first wrote them and said, oh, these four things. I, I, I forgot. Uh, another. There's been so many. It's been the incredible part. Like, through eight games, Carondelet's against Vanderbilt. Obviously, we're never going to forget that one. That's uh, a simple one, right off the top of your head. That's, a, that's what started it all. Tyree Robinson against Sanford, right? Tyree Robinson against the Citadel. On that interception. Now it's not on the goal line, but it's the throw, left side of the field, kind of momentum changer. Check the 10 yard line. That's right. Still in the red zone. Uh, Elijah Huzzy versus Chattanooga, right? Obvious one in the end zone. Now, didn't end up winning that game, but what would the game have looked like if they scored there? Uh, And then Zach West against Firm. Those are the ones that come to mind right away. The one I forgot when I listened to your post game um, while I was tearing down, I I actually forgot Huzzy, believe that or not. And all, all those were incredible plays, but his probably the most. The, the Lentz got, you know, a tip ball came came his way. And then um, Robinson, it was a, a couple floaters, honestly. But he's just so good. Yeah. And, you know, he goes there and catches the floaters. The running, you know, running off your guy, leaping, fully extended, high point the ball, catch by Huzzy was incredible. And then West, if you see it, they set up like they're – and it was a, a nice design because they ran the throwback. But what they did was they had to tight end on the right side, and they, they had the line in the running back go as they were going to do a screen. So that sucked in the linebackers to go to the screen. Well, all of the receivers' flow went to the right side of the field, and then here comes Miller crossing back to the back corner. And so he's wide open, Wilson off his back foot because he had two guys chasing him. I believe one was DeAndre Davis, the other was um, Lajuan Pinkleton. Both guys get their hands up. He throws off his back foot, doesn't have a lot on it. And before he throws it, you can see Wes kind of peek back and see, like, oh, there's a guy there. So he starts running back before the ball is thrown. Then as he's running back, the ball is thrown. He actually stops because it's such a bad throw. And it waits on it. And Miller's so far back, he can't get there to play defensive back. And he's able to pick it up. But the recognition of, hey, there's a screen here, and I'm going to have to make this tackle on a screen. On the wait a minute, there's a guy behind me. I'm going to go run for him. Just shows you, I think, the level of coaching. Because same thing with Huzzy. Hey, they watch a lot of film. We've seen this play. This is what you know Vanderbilt wanted to run against us. I know – this guy's a decoy, and as soon as he recognizes a decoy, he just breaks off his guy. Now, the truth is, if it wasn't a decoy and he throws the slant, we're talking about, what's Huzzy doing? Why are you coming off your guy, right? Blah, blah, blah. The usual segment. But he was smart enough to recognize. And the matchup said, hey, Mike Price is against a six foot four receiver. 
we're going to throw the six foot four receiver. And that's the only knock I have on Jace Wilson. It was twice on third down. They had Ryan Miller in the slot as the third receiver going up against Mike Price. And they went outside against Carondelens twice for two incompletions. That would be the only thing I think Jace Wilson, besides the throw off his back foot, he wish he could have over again. All the other plays and throws, I mean, you'll forgive a couple throws here and there because it's football. It happens. Nobody, you know, uh, you know, unless you set the, the record for 25 for 25 or something, they're going to be throws. Obviously, the drop in the end zone wasn't his fault. It was Ron Miller's fault. So I thought Jace Wilson has a bright future. I don't know why Furman didn't continue to run some play-action crossers. That's the only other thing I would say. And ETSU finally got him out of the RPO when Tyree Robinson just said, you know what, if they fake his handoff, I'm just going to cut straight across the field. And he almost had another interception. He, he deflected that one, then it was two plays later, uh, or three plays later, you saw the Zach West interception. So you have the situational things that ETSU has just been able to do so well. Red zone, right? Unbelievable. And they come up with another big play that takes points off the board, essentially, for Furman. Early, we already talked about that. The drop pass in the end zone, Ryan Miller gets sacked, Davion Hood, push them out of field goal range. Those two things don't go your way. You're looking at a two-score deficit going into that final drive of the game, much like Chattanooga, is essentially over. Uh, if you get a score, you'd have to get a miraculous onside kick. You'd probably get called offside, even if everybody was 10 yards behind the play, and the game's over. Uh and the team that did not play good situational defense was for me on that final drive. And now give ETSU credit. They played phenomenal situational offense, right? Executed to perfection. But you look over the life of the game, all 60 minutes, the thing that stood out was the Bucks continue defensively to step up when they need to at crucial situations of the game. And I don't care if it's early or late. There are still crucial situations throughout all four quarters. And the Bucks, just like we said, those five, I believe it is, red zone stops that they've had that have resulted in turnovers and haven't just been stopped but have completely changed the game and in some cases completely flipped field position, so on and so forth. Um, Furman was no exception. In that first quarter, they got the big play as well. And without those points, the Paladins didn't have a safe enough lead going into that final drive. And didn't have that extra cushion that it seems like teams need against ETSU because when their back is against the wall, honestly, defensively or offensively, it seems like they respond, and they did so again on Saturday. I think it's the most impressive part of the team. One, the offense again, as soon as the team went down and scored a touchdown, they go right back down to score a touchdown when they hadn't had one all day. And it's amazing to me. I need to go back and just stat that at some point. But there's very few times that they've given up the defense a touchdown, the offense has not come back down and scored. And I, I will get that for Thursday because I'm very interested in that stat. It's not that hard to look up. The other thing I would say is Quay Holmes said it. You know, he's like, man, some of the offense guys are like, why, why are the defense chirping at us? And Quay's like, because they've saved our butt for several years now. It's our turn. We've got to make plays. Like, look at what they've done. They've kept us in this game, and we've not, we've not done our part. We need to do our part. And I thought that was interesting you know, sort of how not necessarily like guys chirping at one another, but certainly I get it. I mean, you hold a team to 13 points and you're thinking you're not going to win the game. I mean, you held a team, you know, last week to 21, right? And, again, I still go with my theory. If ETSU could just score 24, they'd win the game. Now they've won a couple with not scoring 24, and they've obviously lost the game without scoring 24. So I think it's important for the rest of the year. But the defense to just continue to grind – 
slow teams down enough, and then just make plays when it's there to make in the red zone. It's the best red zone defense I think I've ever seen. Uh, and, you know, I don't know all Southern Conference red zone defenses, but at least in ETSU lore, I mean, you know, four or five turnovers, it, it's incredible to see what they've been able to do and hold teams out of. And then Tyler Rydell, I mean, just making all the throws late. I mean, they were able to pick up blitzes and blocks, and I thought he put the ball – once he had time, I thought he put the ball on the money a lot. You know, and I think he's done that uh, all season. So I think if they can figure out how to protect him, I think ETSU will be successful and and can get back to a 30-point scoring team again if they can, you know, give him enough throwing lanes to to make again. Sometimes it's just about giving him enough space to see and and to – to make throws, but I thought that last drive, again, just showed his moxie of, you know, as a redshirt freshman, you know, Wilson's only had three starts. In reality, what's it, start 12, 13 for Rydell overall? So he's just finishing up his freshman year, if you will. Um, you know, maybe his first game of sophomore year, if you really want to stretch it, but still, you look at that, and to me it says just how good, you know, he's come along as well. We give a lot of credit to Rydell. We probably won't talk about this enough, and I won't even hear. Just want to really quick touch on and give credit to Malik Murray because I've been calling for weeks and weeks and weeks on Randy Sanders' company to use him more. And it's not like they haven't used him at all throughout the year. He's had his four- and five-catch games here and there. He had another five-catch game on Saturday. He's just not getting the yards, and that's what I think goes under the radar. You don't look at him and say, wow, he's really affecting the game because he's getting you know like 25 yards a game if he averaged it out over the year. But when they need something, when they know that it is time to go, right, it's Malik Murray time. I think he is the Bucks' most, and I think that this gets a bad rap. Receivers like Malik because people call him a possession receiver, and people connotate that with, yeah, well, he can't even get the deep ball. He's not super you know, talented. He'll just do the dirty work underneath. Well, even if all that's true, I think he is the tactician. I think he is the measured, calculated, reliable person that ETSU needs in crucial situations. And he showed up right when the Bucks needed him. And you know, they tried to target him a couple times in the screen game, and screens were not working. Coach Sanders talked about it you know, post-game, how he saw what Furman had done and thought screens were great. And honestly, every single one that I can remember uh, was extremely forgettable. Um, but even or was called back by penalty. Or was called back. Yeah, that's true. Right. That's the one that wasn't. Um, but when it came down to the game on the line, it was the most experienced with the highest level of success, and the one that you can count on that was in the route that was there that made the catch. And I don't think that is any coincidence. And I'll say this too, to defend Coach Sanders a little bit, there were guys running wide open on that last drive, which is almost considering how they've struggled all game to throw the football, just goes back to ETSU leaving the running backs in to help pick up the blitzes. Offensive line maybe got a little bit more comfortable, whatever it was, figuring it out, talking to on the sideline. I don't know. But they were able to give the time, and Rydell made easy throw after easy throw. There was only one time on the last drive I can remember he had to kind of fit one in there and did. I think that was the Price who made an outstanding hands catch. But other than that, 
he threw, I mean, the, Nate Atkins was wide open 20 yards down the field. Huzzy was wide open 20 yards down the field. There was a couple of comeback routes that were open. I mean, it was, it was kind of incredible. And that's the only thing after I've had time to sit and not be in the moment and watch a little bit, maybe Coach Sanders was maybe on to something in his theory. Now, I'm still with if you can get 70 yards to carry. And I'm, I don't, I don't sound like Don, but I've often said I, I, I'm a run-the-football-type guy. I don't really like chunking it. You know, I like run, 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 and then a deep play action every once in a while. That, that's sort of – if I had to – you know, if you ever played me in Madden, that would be my, my style. I just run at you and occasionally throw deep. You're so, an academy guy. I am. That's true. I'm an academy guy. So, I, I think I was impressed with how the receivers got open and, and you know, were there when it counted. And then I thought there was some creativity. I mean – how long do you think Randy Sanders has sat on that shovel pass we've never ran before? And, I, you know, that was very reminiscent of the overtime loss to Western Carolina where they ran the shovel pass, and I can still see it now. I think it was Kosicki who ended up scoring on that. But it, it was one of those plays where I was like, oh, what a genius play. And then the quarter, you know, Rodell's a little guy, but he converted on a couple quarterback sneaks. And so ETSU was able to do that, I thought. You know, they didn't fool anybody on the first down play with three tight ends and 17 seconds, no timeouts, right? <laughs> like, I think everyone knew, and, and no one was open. And then the, the second play, you know, he's splitting three receivers out and uh, making the running backs on the left side, and then he had Murray one-on-one on the right side. You know, the only difference was from the Vandy game, they had the tight end uh, was on the right side, and I think he ran out to the flat, and Murray kind of ran around him. But the route concept for Murray – was about the same, except he was just one-on-one and had to beat his guy. Rydell, if you watch the play from the end zone shot, does a great job of taking the snap and immediately looking left. Something subtle. It wasn't long. It was, you know, Hutt, he gets the ball, he looks, maybe a count of a 1,000, maybe even less, and then he turns and knows exactly where he's going with the football. And just that look left, you know, watching the replay, you see some of the guys go darting left, and by the time he looked back, they don't have time to stop and come back. He moved them with their with their eyes, right? You always hear about that. He moved them with their eyes. And then he throws in the back corner. And Malik Murray's one of the best in the business at getting his feet inbounds. It, that is one of the fun things I like watching him catch the football is he always knows where he's at. His football IQ of where I'm at on the field, when I need to drag a toe, when I need to tiptoe, whatever it is, he finds a way to get his foot down in the end zone was able to do that and fitting that Zach West, I thought, got the final fumble of the game and got the second turnover, you know, and just, uh, I think, an outstanding story of the next man up mentality that everyone has. So that's our breakdown of Furman. We got a lot to talk about. Speaking of breakdowns. Mm-hmm. Breakdown. Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, one, one. Sandoz and the sidekick. We have a mission. It's our favorite. Where yes. do you want to start? Where do you want to start? Well, five one-loss teams. You want to start with the lock of the year, according to Kevin Brown? Southern Conference weekend. What was his lock of the year? Sanford Bulldogs, <laughs> lock of the year. He, he chastised me for giving the stats of Sanford uh, can't score seven games in a row, haven't scored 30 against Chattanooga, now make it eight. And I remember him giving me the, the Sanford to be able to score on him. It's lock yeah. of the year. Sanford to be able to win. And I remember, I think, uh, I don't know, 
10-12 plays into it, it was 14-3. I said, is that still your lock of the year? And Robert Harper, the flippy flopper, he had agreed with Kevin on the group text and immediately uh, flipped and said, nope, Chad's going to boat race me. We got him Chattanooga bandwagon. Well, let's talk about it. Okay. Because Chattanooga to me is making it clear that they are here to stay in the title race. I did not see this game going like this. We both thought there was a scenario in which Sanford could win the game. We talked about that on Thursday. Very outside shot, as it may have been. Our more prevalent thought, though, was that there was no way it wouldn't be close, and that obviously was completely incorrect. Chat found a way, and then some, to make this one extremely ugly for the Sanford Bulldogs. Their most complete performance of the year, double-digit points every quarter. More impressively, they hold Sanford to a touchdown and two field goals, pick off Liam Welch three times, and hold Sanford to just 200 yards of total offense. That's their second-lowest total since Chris Hatcher took over in 2015. Only the Auburn game at the end of 2019 standing as a more fruitless offensive effort. Was you write another book. Gained just 114 yards and were shut out 52 nothing. but that means this was the Bulldogs' worst day offensively against FCS opponents under Hatcher. Heck, against non-Power 5 opponents in these six and a half seasons of Coach Hatcher. Do you find it interesting that Chat put up the exact same amount of points as ETSU against the Bulldogs, and if so, what do you then make of the fact that Sanford scored 48 on ETSU and only 13 on Chat? I think, again, it goes back to matchups, and, and I will just beat this like a dead horse drum, whatever. I dead think, horse drum. Yeah, dead horse drum, sure. But certain teams, had just the matchups play out. And like I said, now Wofford's not good. Even when Wofford was going seven and one in the league, they would lose to Sanford, who would be four and four, three and five, five and three, never winning a championship. They would always lose to Sanford, no matter how good they are. Chattanooga always beat Sanford. Whatever the you know, whatever the fit is defensively versus this offense, whatever they do well, they do a little better than ETSU. Now again, they've got a couple disruptors. They don't sub as much. ETSU has always had different sub-packages, all this. So they rely on, and that's why teams are starting to go fast on ETSU, so that they can't do all the matchups. Chattanooga is really, this is our best 11. They're going to stay out there a lot. They'll rotate a couple of defensive linemen in, but they're not really rotating people. Like, So they're not worried if Sanford goes fast because they've got their guys in there where if it's third long, you know, ETSU wants to get the recon package or, you know, if the defensive line's been out there for five plays, they like to rotate more guys in. Whatever it is, I think it's still about matchups and confidence, right? I mean, Chattanooga always beat Sanford. I think there's something to the mentality of Sanford knows they always lose to Chat. There's also something that Chat knows they always beat Sanford. So I'm not as impressed really with the 13 points. I'm more impressed that Cole Copeland had three completions over 40 yards. I mean, that's what I'm impressed by. He threw 260 yards on like 11 completions. And, you know, the defense – 13, I guess, is impressive. If you would have said he held him to 24, I would probably still think the same thing. I didn't think they could get to 30. I thought, you know, Sanford maybe 27, 24, something like that. I just thought Sanford would have trouble scoring. I didn't see 13. But I didn't think they were going to score a lot. And everybody else seemed like thought they would score a lot. But I think the matchup with the Chattanooga's defense with Sanford has always been there because Sanford has always struggled to score. Whether it's Devlin Hodges or not, they just can't get to 30. It's been eight years now, eight different tries since they've had 30 points against Chattanooga. So I'm impressed with Chat's defense. I'm impressed with the blowout. There's no doubt about that. Um, but I think this game, you know, was more about 
Chad kind of flexing his muscles defensively and then allowing Cole Copeland against that solid Sanford. Chris Hatcher's happy with his defense um, secondary. Before we move on, just to tell you how incredible 200 yards of total offense is in a bad way for Sanford, I was just looking up that stat and going back through the years of Hatcher at Sanford. Found that there was a two-week stretch against Western Carolina and VMI. Now, keep in mind, that was not the VMI that we know now. This was in 2018. But they put up 139 points and 1,509 yards in those two weeks. They went over 700 yards offensively two weeks in a row. I know, again, it's you know, Western Carolina and VMI from 2018, but outrageous. I mean, absolutely outrageous. Uh, but still. Uh, yards and points don't always translate to victories, and they could not get yards or points against Chattanooga. I uh, talked about it. Five one-loss teams entered the Southern Conference weekend. Four exit. The only loser was Furman to ETSU, which, of course, we talked about extensively in segment one. To me, Furman was the most vulnerable of one-loss teams. Granted, they were nine seconds away from beating ETSU, but they showed very little Saturday to disavow me of any concerns that were developed from their loss against Mercer. Remember that being 24-3. to Speaking of Mercer... They had the nightcap against Wofford and bounced back in a big way after that 45-7 loss to VMI. Now, it didn't end up being the only game that was blown, as we talked about, but it did take on the form that we were expecting. Uh, I think you and me both thought on the Thursday show that this had a chance to be a blowout. So at least we nailed this one, even though we didn't nail um, Sanford and Chattanooga. Didn't turn the ball over twice in two minutes and get down 14-0 like they did two weeks back. And lo and behold, Mercer... They're the ones to score 45 this week after VMI did that to them two weeks back. I think headline number one of this is that Fred Payton certainly shut my mouth. I said going into the game that I thought Carter Peavy may be the better option at quarterback, at least for this week. I could not have been more wrong. 19 of 28, 357 yards and three touchdowns. That running game had a nice rebound also after averaging under one yard per carry two weeks ago. Up near five per tote with Fred Davis and Al Wooten combining for 170 rushing yards. On Wofford's side, their first loss to Mercer in 80 years. Their ninth straight SoCon loss is their longest drought in program history, and as bad of an offensive performance as I could remember from them, it's their lowest yardage output since losing to North Dakota State, 42-10 to in the playoffs in 2017. 176 total yards, uh, one less than they had that day. In SoCon play, their fewest yards since 2009 when they lost to Elon, 34-6, and had 170. Bryce Corriston did start at QB. He obviously was not the flicker they needed on offense. 8 of 17, 58 yards. Did throw a touchdown. But, uh, yeah. Uh, Game started off, it was going to be, I thought, a shootout because, you know, Mercer jumped out to a 14-0 lead. Wofford comes back and answers with a touchdown and then on the ensuing defensive possession get a long fumble return for a touchdown. So it's 14-14. Then they force a punt. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, Wofford may get something going. We were kind of half listening to the game driving back from um, Furman. And then Wofford fumbled around their goal line, and Mercer had an easy pickup score. So back-to-back fumble returns. You don't see that often for each team in the scoring ledger. But then it went to halftime, and you're thinking, you know, it's you know, it's just a 10-point game. Wofford's kind of hanging in there. And second half, just never heard the bell. I mean, Mercer went back to Mercer, 11-play, 71 yards. Then they had a little 6-play, 73-yard, hit a big pass down the middle. And because they had ran the ball so successfully on the previous drive, their next two drives, they were able to hit a couple long play-action passes. And that's where Peyton, there's not a lot of true gunslingers in the Southern Conference, no, right? Not. So, and, and, and there are so many, I, I don't know, 
how many young quarterbacks, if you go back and look at, you know, really last week, Cole Copeland is probably going to be your most senior guy. And, and even if Rogan Wilson, we're going to talk about that later, even if Rogan Wilson played, he had played in the Southern Conference. Right. But, but at least he would be a guy who has experience, right? Even Jalen Adams played defense for a year, and it's just his second season, if you will, and he had the short spring season. I mean, just the number of young quarterbacks in this league that are freshmen or sophomore or just, you know, barely ten starts under their belts. I mean, Rodell may be the second most senior guy with starts in the Southern Conference, which is – that's that's what's incredible to me. So teams are having to produce off the play-action pass. And I think when you get those young quarterbacks, it just makes it easier for them if the run game can get going. Um, and Devin, Devin Wynn did not look healthy for – Furman, I think that hurt Jace Wilson a little bit in that game. But for Mercer, their run game was healthy. I mean, they were getting big chunk yards or doing all that, and then they're able to do the play action. And Peyton certainly bounced back from his poor effort. Uh, so I, I'm amazed with the young quarterbacks and how this league is kind of wide open because there's just not a lot of guys with a, a lot of snaps. I mean, Seth Morgan came into his own last year, right, because he had to play the last few games. Even Liam Welch was going. Right, he didn't even start last Solidokin, year. Yeah. Right, he, he didn't start the first game and then, and then even split sometime a little bit last year. I He's mean, a preseason league player of the year. <laughs> this is a very young quarterback group for the league, and so I think it, quarterback play could be really good in a couple of years if everybody stays and everybody continues to grow or there's not coaching changes and people switch you know, offenses all together. But either way, my point is this is just such a young group of quarterback that I think you're going to get games like we've seen Tyler Rydell last couple of weeks, like we've seen Peyton the last couple of weeks. What was shocking is how Liam Welch has been up and down. You know, I think Seth Morgan, now that he's healthy, starting to get some numbers. Plus, they've added a little bit more of a running game for him. But for the, the Woffords, the Furmans, and, and, you know, ETSU, Mercer, some of these young cats that are in there, I think there's going to be a little bit of ebb and flow. And I think Welch doesn't get credit for the number of, you know, people assume he's been that veteran guy and had all these snaps, and he, he really hasn't. You know, he got the five games in the spring, whatever it was, six games in the spring. and, and Started five of them, and then he played eight, but – through 130 passes to Oladokun's 272 in 2019. Yeah, so. very. So he, he he's as young as I mean. And Cole Copeland lost his job after starting as a freshman. So this is just his second year starting, and he didn't even start the first part of the year. He's at least been in the system for four or five years. I'll give him that. But I don't know that there's a quarterback that has 20 starts that's in the league. And that to me that that's. That's not a good sign for the quarterback play. But that's why I think you're getting those Fred Payton look bad last week. Now it looks good this week. Now you get the ground game going. For Wofford and Coach Conklin, boy, I, I, don't, I cannot imagine the Wofford Terrier folks being very excited. And that's not even a word. I don't know. Very ple- pleasantly. In the, I don't know. I, I, They've I, never I, treaded lightly with Wofford before, so just go ahead and say what I said. If they don't have a moving truck at his house already, wow, okay. I think there are. Well, there were fans. Uh, there were fans before the ETSU game that were fired up at Coach Conklin. He loses the ETSU game, and it was a tight game. Then it, they come back, right? Then they, I forgot who they played after. They win that one. No, they lost that one. Uh, then they Furman. Sanford. Yeah, it was Sanford. Yeah, it was Sanford 27-24. They missed 41-yard field goal. They lose to Furman. Furman boat raced them, which was the biggest 
lost to Furman in school history. Now you have the longest streak. You have an 80-year streak goes awry. And granted, they've only played like six times in 80 years. But still, the 80-year streak goes awry. Things are not looking good. The only person who maybe looks worse than Coach Conklin is this guy. Western Carolina at the Citadel, and this one looked like it was over early. 28 of the first, 31 for the Catamounts. Carlos Davis got the start at quarterback for Western again. He had three passing touchdowns in the first 22 minutes of game action, but the Citadel wouldn't make it easy on their home field. They get back to 31-24 going into the fourth quarter. Then the run game showed up, though, for Western. T.J. Jones, 30 and 53-yard touchdown runs with five minutes between the two uh, to put the game away, essentially. And the offensive numbers were just incredible for the Catamounts. 401 passing yards for Davis with those three touchdowns we talked about. 132 on the ground for Jones with two scores. Raphael Williams, 147 through the air on 12 catches, one of which went for a touchdown. Overall, nearly 600 yards of total offense. For the Citadel, don't let the box score fool you. Yes, Jalen Adams and Dariq Hampton. Both played. Hampton only came in, though, once the game was out of reach. Logan Billings has had a couple of quiet weeks after a big open to his career for the Bulldogs, their leading rusher outside of Adams. Uh, he scored twice, but just 54 yards. I told you I thought Raleigh Webb was due for a long touchdown over the top since it had been a few weeks. That doesn't come, and of course, when it doesn't, W's don't either. We know that from the stats we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Their winning percentage drops like 400 points when he doesn't get the 70-plus yard touchdown. So, but he did, he did have a 62-yard catch. Not for a touchdown. But he didn't score. He didn't score. So whose seat is hotter since you led right into it? Josh Coughlin's or Brent Thompson's? And I'm going to throw in, just for the sake of argument, Chris Hatcher. And I include Hatcher because he comes in, takes over a good program, four straight years above 500 in the league from 2011 to 2014. He gets there in 2015. Does well, takes him to the FCS playoffs two of the first three years. Um, since one game below 500 overall and two games above 500 in the league, that's nothing catastrophic, but it's certainly nothing that stands out for the positive. I think the reason I say he's probably a distant third from those two is because there isn't the expectation at the Citadel or at Wofford. Uh, at least I don't think. It seems like Wofford and Citadel, certainly two more uh, historic programs. Sanford had that success with Coach Hatcher uh, right in the middle of the – 2010s, but that's not something that they have had over a long period of time. So, in my opinion, a distant third. Your thoughts? Distant third because I think the fan bases are different at each, obviously different at each school. The expectation, right? But Sanford's not not had the success in the championships and the clamor. You're talking about Citadel and Wofford were battling for conference championships a couple of years ago with two different coaches. Those coaches are gone. You have two new coaches in there things are not going in the right direction. The amount of money the Citadel alumni spend on football alone is going to dictate Coach Thompson's tenure. When that alumni base finally looks at the AD and says, he goes, that's when the trigger will be pulled. It's that simple there. For Wofford's a bit interesting because they've had Mike Ayers there for so long and went away from really, now I know Coach Conk was there for a short time at Wofford, but went away really from the coaching tree that I think he wanted uh, them to go. I'll be curious to see. But the fan base at Wofford, I think, is getting pretty vocal. The Citadel fan base isn't so much vocal. It's so much that the class of 63 and the class of that, although basically each class prides themselves on buying something and giving back to the school. It's sort of a tradition there. So when you go on Citadel's campus, you know, for an example, there's a huge bulldog this marble thing is by class of whatever. The new press box is class of whatever. The suites are class of whatever. The 
scoreboard is you get where I'm going with it. So they do a, a great job of getting the classes together to foot the bill so that they don't ask for, hey, we want you to make all these donations. At some point, they come up with projects and then ask, hey, which class can step up, and then the class comes together and buys it, which I think is a very interesting way. And clearly it's worked because a lot of their facilities, you know, are, are top-notch if you go there. I know the basketball arena is a solid they always shoot the visiting side, which looks the worst, as opposed to where they actually have suites and everything and stands with people in it. They only show you the opposite side of the, like the, the high school Hoosiers basketball pullout bleachers with you know 14 fans that are ETSU's fans. But if they would show the other side, I think it would showcase really what money they do have in that building. I think, for me, I think Thompson won Conklin too, but because of fan bases, I think reality Conklin maybe won in Thompson too. One and one A, right? I mean, it's tough to. I, I think those, those two are the two at the end of the season. I, I mean, you lose to to Western at home after the big win VMI. You know, they really had Furman all. I mean, Thompson's been right there, but they're just not winning. For Wofford, they're they're just taking big L's. Or again, they miss a field goal, forty-one yards that was short. I mean, it's just an amazing see. And then offensively, they've just been anemic, and they've been trying to change the offense and bring it up to whatever century Conklin thinks it needs to be in. But he needs to go back to the Red Grange and Four Horsemen in Notre Dame or something. Go run the box. I don't know. It's incredible to look at one historic thing, but then also just this season. So you have Wofford with that longest SoCon losing streak in their program's history now, which obviously is more alarming than one game's result, but Western Carolina had won a game. You were at home. You had just beaten VMI a couple of weeks, but it's just incredible for the Citadel in that way. Who are you more surprised by, Carlos Davis or Fred Payne? Well, Carlos Davis had a lot. A lot of people said he could throw the football and just needed to get on the field, so that, that doesn't surprise me. I think Fred Payton's bounce-back game was a big one. I think Davis have been making strides, too. And, and really, Kerwin Bell is going to score points. He's, going, he's not going to be Chris Hatcher. Um, now, they look like that with 577 you know, yards. And honestly, Rogan Wells had like a 700-yard, 650-yard game himself. It was just all done by Liam Welch, 700 yards that week. So, Kerwin Bell is going to get offense. And he's going to be more concerned with wins than stats than Sanford is. So, I'm more shocked, I guess, that Peyton – Fred Payton was able to put up those big numbers, and if he puts up, you know, those big numbers, all predicated on the run game. If, if you watched some of that, they're able to get it going. If you can stuff the run, I don't know that Fred Payton can throw you into games. I think Carlos Davis could throw you into games, so that's why I think I'm more uh, impressed with what Fred Payton was able to do over the weekend. How many days are we from ETS event basketball starting? Well, it's November 12th. Come on, math guy. Twenty. That's not even close. Eighteen. Well, come 12. on, twenty-six, seven, eight, nine, ten, one. So that's six plus twelve. Eighteen. Okay. Well, I start on the fifth. Twenty-seven. But, but I get you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Scrimmage game. We'll have another look at this one. Number fifth. Number fifth. It's a
go back to September, we've talked to every single show. But we've definitely, over the last six We haven't gone a week eight, without it, right? Certainly haven't gone a week without it. Um, and now we're doing a Buck Basketball buzzer beater blowout because we've made up about half the years we're trying to cover so far. And, yeah, as of today, 18 days until the blue and gold put the ball in the air. we got some ground to make up ourselves. Speaking of math, what season will this be for UTSC men's basketball? I think I counted like 103. Did we do a 100-year celebration? I think we did, yes. When was that? Like 1819 or 1920? Yeah, Mike White was in charge. Okay, well, he probably didn't even know it. Uh, So it uh, was like 102, We did, did, but I mean it was. 102, 103 something. Um, I have a feeling that will be disputed by someone. In fact, if Mike White's listening to this, I'm sure he'll call me very quickly and just be like, how could you not know? And he'll give me a whole 100-year history of it and then, you know. He can do it. He's been here. Apologize. Yeah, he was here for almost 100 years, no question. Um, anyway, let's head back to the 2013-14 year. We're not quite at 100 seasons yet at that point, and the ETS men's basketball team, as we detailed on Thursday, were coming off a campaign that you'd probably have to rank in the bottom 10 of however many years that it has been for ETSU men's basketball in the bottom 10 because they were able to muster only 10 wins. You foreshadowed it Thursday on our last B5, whatever we're calling this segment, looking over that 2012-13 year. Following all the chaos that was that season, the Bucks bringing the likes of Jalen Riley, Isaac Banks, uh, Class AA Mr. Basketball Tennessee finalist. You may have heard of him, A.J. Merriweather in that class as well. Uh, now it always takes teams, you have to figure, a large amount of new players, especially new contributors, some time to gel. The Bucks lost their first four of the season in 2013-14, but then they strung together wins in seven of their next nine going into the Atlantic Sun Conference uh, opener. And facing their ups and downs in A-Sun action, they found themselves 500 on the league, entering a duel with the Dolphins of Jacksonville. 15 to go in a game. Left side, Lester Wilson, Merriweather. They'll try it. Well, they're going to reverse it. They do. Near side. Now to Gaston Gilliard with nine seconds. He'll drive. Shot off the glass. Bucket good and the foul. KGG gives the Bucks the lead. Kennard Gaston Gilliard to give the Bucks the lead inside 10 seconds to go in regulation. And at the buzzer, Vince Martin misses what would have been a game-winning triple. Gaston Gilliard. The hero, and we've heard from him, not in a game-winning capacity so far in this count up to the season, but just in mentions here and there, he was a large human, 6'6", 250 pounds, transfer from Roan State, Tennessee Juco Player of the Year in 2011-12. Could shoot it from outside, could get to work inside just the two seasons with the Bucks because he spent those two years at Roan State. KGG struggled a bit his first year in 2012-13, though who didn't, obviously, as we talked about in the last countdown or count up to the season. Uh, but a double-digit scorer and a really well-rounded player in his final year at the Bucks, it seemed like. He had a move that I don't think a guy his size should be able to do, and it was one of those where, like, he would get it top the key, dribble between the legs, couple couple steps towards the hoop, behind-the-back dribble, step back, fade away, like 19-footer. And the first couple times he shot it, I'm like, what is he doing? <laughs> and it kept going in, and finally I said, I just – I think we're on the bus somewhere. I was like, hey, Canard, uh, is that like something you've done like on the playground? He's like, I've been working on that move for like as long as I can remember. So it was his go-to move, and it was hardly ever stops. It was a very incredible to see a guy that size to be that smooth. That was the other thing. He had two gifts, I think, for a guy his size that was hard to imagine. One, his handles. He really – could handle the basketball and look good doing it, not just dribble for show, but he could dribble it up the court. He could dribble it, you know, around people. 
through people, you know, throw it between her legs and get. I mean, he was incredible with the ball. The other thing was defensively, he had the knack for jumping on a fast break on defense and his verticality and not fouling. So basically jumping straight up, letting the guy run into him and him fall back, not down. This is before they had the the arc where you had to be in the air and all that. Like he he was incredible at just kind of getting in the way, jumping up, hand straight up, and, and then going backwards with the player and not falling down or anything. So nobody went down, so there's no reason to call contact. I think that was the two of the biggest things he brought to the table for his size I thought was incredible. Third thing was his family, because if we were ever on the road in South Carolina, I've already said this, it was it was amazing, the home crowd advantage, um, sort of how they would get the home fans fired up. I mean, it was, it was something. But he had that, that ability as a big man to make moves that I think a guy his size, I don't know that in ETSU uniform I've seen a guy. I mean, he looked like he should be playing defensive end or tight end or D-tackle. I mean, he was a big dude. Bucks go on to finish the conference here 10-8. and eight. They are eliminated in the ace on semifinals. Florida Gulf Coast 69-64 the final after a double overtime victory over Lipscomb in the A-Sun quarters, but two days later eliminated. You don't have that audio. I know it's not a buzzer beater, but that's the greatest audio in the history of my broadcasting career. Is it? Yeah. That's the he didn't know. Oh, the he didn't know. That's the he didn't know. So, and I I do want to talk about that for a half second. It's the one I kind of felt bad, um, and I never feel bad for the opposing team, right? (laughs) But Josh Williams was a a true freshman for um, Lipscomb, an incredible player. He forgot what the score was. He thought they were down one after a free throw was made to tie the game up. And that was a missed free throw or a missed shot. What is it? Missed free throw, right? Oh, so ETSU tied it up. Lipscomb goes down, misses a shot. Williams fouls A.J. Merriweather because he thinks they're still down. It was tied. Merriweather, with two seconds, actually gets fouled and throws the ball three-quarters court because he didn't know how much time is in there. Wow. Well, they don't give the shots, of course, because nobody's going to give you that. But then you could see him sort of turn and look with his hands on his head like, uh, and then that's when I just started yelling he didn't know. And A.J. Merriweather in classic form steps up to the line in tie game and misses the first free throw. Uh. Then he hits the second, and with no timeouts, Keon Sankey, who I've already mentioned, looked like the 80-year-old guy at the YMCA, takes it, heaves it more than half court from the right corner, uh, of the court, or not really a corner, but right near the sideline, opposite side of the broadcast position, and the ball hits the middle of the the window there, or the block or whatever in the middle, and it hits the front rim and sits there for a half second and falls off. And Lipscomb ends up losing that game on the, on the he didn't know uh, on A.J. Merriweather. It's not uh, broadcasting excellence, but just the pure <laughs> – I'm just it, – it's one of those where the call is me calling it excited but yet in disbelief and feeling sorry for a guy because it was it, it was an unbelievable finish. Then my, after that, Bucks do go down to Florida Gulf Coast. National but, tournament time. Thought they – Not exactly the national tournament they would have wanted, but – No, thought, uh, thought they had a great shot in that. Couldn't make enough plays late. End up falling in that one. And then the second run of the CIT. Right. And here was the selling point. The Bucks would go in the Southern Conference the next year. Now, I remember cutting the open in which I give all the stats of all the champions and all the rivalry and all the times they played for the Southern Conference title and blah, blah, blah. And I remember ending it with the rivalry. It's so good it had to start a year early. And then ETSU wins that game, 
And then uh, you know, I think it was like, I don't know, four or 5,000 fans in the Dome fired up. Next week they play Towson. I think there was like 1,400. Nobody cared. <laughs> ETSU lost to the Towson Tigers. The ETSU chat. I mean, it was great. they had to play it up. 79 to 66, and then, yeah, you lose to Towson. Just the CIT I cannot get excited about. I, don't know. I love that you are finding a way in that moment to try and make it sound relevant. Clearly it was relevant for fans that showed up that day. But, like, looking back on that game, if it's not ETSU Chattanooga, it is the most me- meaningless game in, I think, postseason ETSU history. Right? Like, a pretty average year, you know, relatively, you know, 500, I think, 1916 and 10-8, right? And so... You know, nothing special about the 2013-14 season, but the rivalry that started a year early, that is brilliant marketing. I mean, that's great spin, and that's our job, we, right? We, we actually had some of Chattanooga's all that they knew they were coming to the game because it's ETSU Chats. We honored Chattanooga, some of their all-time greats, and we had some of ETSU's all-time greats right. that were at the game. So at halftime, we had an impromptu, hey, here's some of the Chats, you know, which, of course, they got booed, half-clapped, half-booed, then yeah. the buck, you know, fans. And I love that. It, it was it was one of those situations, but it you know went from like four thousand the first game to two thousand thirty three, which I'm sure was generous. I, I think it was probably twelve or thirteen hundred fans. The first year of the CIT, when they had Mike Smith and all that, it was a brand new tournament, and because all those guys they had four or five fifth year, four or five year seniors, I think it was just different that it was like a last two raw for them, and I think the fans were just because they come off two NCAA because I would say that one would would have been worse just on face value because they just come off back-to-back NCAA tournaments. Why would you get excited for that? But those guys were so loved that I think people wanted to go to it. And I would have thought this one would have been better just for the simple reason of they had the year before, which we've talked about last year. They had a lot of young pieces that were you could get excited about on how ETSU basketball was kind of trending back upwards. And so then you play Chattanooga. So I'm thinking, oh, boy, this is going to be – and the Chattanooga game, you know, was well attended. And then you go to the next game, and it's like, oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's this, the this, this just, uh, this that's the CIT's fault for not being relevant. We just, we just want it over with. Uh, Kennard Gadsden Gilliard with the buzzer beater on the Buck Basketball Buzzer Beater Blowout 2013-14 season. Next show, 2014-15. And now, bold predictions. Shohei Otani has taken MLB by storm this season. He's the first player in MLB history to be selected to the All-Star game as both a pitcher and a position player. The Brooklyn Nets are home. They are done. If they were committed, if they put in that work, you'd be in the Eastern Conference right now. The Brooklyn Nets are home watching the playoffs with the rest of us. JaVale McGee has been added to the Team USA roster. Yes, I'll say that again. JaVale McGee. Damari Monsanto announced he would not be returning to the Buccaneers. A six-foot-six, 225-pound, three-star shooting guard was this year's Southern Conference Freshman of the Year. But Jay is my teammate. He stepped up with the 17 green to our left, the 18th tee, 45 yards away. Jay proceeds to hit from the 18th tee to the 17th green and into the 17th bucket. I just want you to know how close I was to a perfect week and any bowl predictions. So, Furman, I said for the third year in a row, ETS is going to hold the 17 or less after not doing that for 35 years. They did that, 17 to 13. Furman scores just 13. I said Tennessee loses by 28 or more. And a late garbage time touchdown from Alabama makes it 28 exactly. 
But I also had to get Air Force over San Diego State. And unfortunately, in a one-score game, a game that did not feature more than 500 yards of combined total offense, a 2014 loss. And then I also said that the rushing or receiving mark would be broken this season by someone in the NFL this week. So it was 206 yards by Devontae Adams, 182 by Derrick Henry. Jamar Chase is 201. Five yards short of breaking the single season this season mark. Uh, could not get it. Five yards. Five yards and six points, and I could have taken a season-long victory. Instead, I have my second bowl prediction correct. You didn't get anything right, which is fantastic. I think it's the first time all year. That is right. I went over, got the uh, Dodgers garbage. Yep. Yeah. Well, they won the first game, got yeah, me excited. Yeah. And then, and then they didn't come back to win the series. Uh, oh, yes. Rydell, 25-plus, three completions. That's right. And, yeah. and they took their shots. He, he did take a shot. They had two for 21, I think. Two completions yeah. for exactly 21 yards. And then the last one was the, was the most <laughs> <laughs> I, I just missed him. Let's just say that. Uh, 600 completions. Oh, whoa, whoa. Let's just, let's just. 600. Yeah. You should get to merits if you don't even get halfway there. I think they actually had like 320. So you did get barely halfway there. Yeah. Uh, you're 8 and 14 now. That record's starting to slip. I got my second win. I'm still 2 and 20, but I got my second win. Let the comeback begin. I know that you're starting to tremble at the thought of being up 7. Two months into the show, and looking back in March, and oh, uh, I didn't get one for the last four months. My Gallagher raced back to a 9-8 victory, which would be our most futile and pathetic performance in full Richmond history. Imagine if you only get 17 combined. Yeah, I'm usually, pretty good. I'm usually pretty good at basketball. You are, that's true. Uh, you started early. I have, so I don't know if that's good or bad going the rest of the way. I do know I didn't predict lock of the century of Sanford. I got to be about that, so I bet that won't go all right, Thursday we'll have a fun day. Sando sidekick. On the back of there!